I'll start by telling you a story. I, I was asked by two different individuals whether we we're going to ring the bells. I thought, here's a parish getting accustomed to the bell. So years ago, I was in an Episcopal parish, and whenever we did a low mass, we would ring a bell, and everybody knew to stand for the bell. Well, at the back of the church was, there was a, the baptismal font. In the middle of the font was a basin made of aluminum. Uh, and it had the holy water in it. So when people went into the parish, they dipped their finger in the holy water and made the sign of the cross. But one day, before I could ring the bell, this German lady, and I say this because she is very strict about this, she walks in every day, she goes, just like this, you know, very emphatic. Uh, so that day, everybody's waiting for me to come, come in and ring the bell, ring the bell and come in. And she walks in and she goes through her routine, but she has a wristwatch on her right arm. And she hits the, the wristwatch, hits the side of the basin. Ring. I mean, it's it like crystal. You know how crystal works? You know, it just, just resonates with sound. It's like crystal. Ring. And she's just standing there making the sign of the cross in her routine. Everybody stands up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I'm five minutes away from entering. So they're standing for five minutes waiting for me to come in. And then the bells ring. So anyway, that's what happens when you get too dependent on the bells. So. So just thought I should tell you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to laugh about that from now on when anyone asks me about the bells. I'm going to have this image of all of you standing. <laughs> Exuberant, ready to go. That's the way it should be. Father, Father, uh, not Father, Vladimir Lasky, an Orthodox theologian, has said this, and I've taken this quote and shortened it. But he says, authentic knowledge, that is of God, is an illumination by grace which transforms our intelligence and we've been we're trying to learn to think as God wants us to think, to perceive reality as God wants us to perceive it. He goes on to say, true knowledge implies encounter, reciprocity, faith as a personal adherence to the personal presence of God who reveals himself. What we've been looking at in these in these in this series is <clears throat> that we can come to Christ with a worldly perspective, a fallen perspective. And because of it, everything we see and experience is perceived through our limited understanding. And we think that's reality. And reality transcends all of that. And so one of the things that, that we are trying to learn as we move forward into the Christian life uh, is that in the midst of all understanding, God must reveal himself, and he wants to, but he waits for us to open ourselves to that revelation. Uh, and until such time as he does, he won't force himself on us. So he's not going to force us to be Christians. He's not going to force us to open our eyes. He's not going to force us to respond to him. We have free will and we can reject him. Uh, and so he respects that because he created that and he created us to be that way. Uh, so what we know and what we experience needs to be based on an encounter with God. And, and what, because once we encounter, we're not, we're not talking about, then when we talk about what we've encountered, we're not talking about speculation or what we speculate God is like. We're talking about what he has revealed to us. And that is the essence of the Christian faith. We talk about what he has revealed to us. Well, we're also talking about it in the context that in the Bible, the first and last sections of the Bible, first two chapters and last two chapters, talk about creation and ultimate recreation. 
And they're like the antiphons that set the tone for how we should read and see the rest of Scripture. And even the whole faith is like that. Uh, and so consequently, I've been adding to this the fact that I think that the church has been telling us for a long time, we're going to see some of this next week, that if we keep, if we understand the creation story correctly as, as, as a revelation of God, not as a scientific document of how all this came to be, but as a revelation of God, if we understand that correctly, it will color the way we see everything else. And the church has been trying to teach us that for centuries because it's so easy to slip into worldliness. I, this is sort of an aside, but to explain it, I, I read a lot of Orthodox books and I find two perspectives. One is, both of them give us lots of knowledge, Orthodox knowledge, and it's wonderful. Except that some not only give us knowledge, but they open to us vistas in which God is encountered. That's what I want to read. And others, it's just knowledge. It's just theology. It's just doctrine. I mean, not to say those are wrong or bad, they're necessary. But they're necessary as expressions of the encounter with God. And so if I read an Orthodox writer, he doesn't do that to me. I don't want to read him anymore. It's the ones that introduce God to me that I read over and over and over again that get deeper and deeper every time. And you can see why. Because you're encountering God. And that's what Scripture does. If you've read, read, the, read the Scriptures, you know it, it just never... One would think that you could read the book and you'd have it. But it doesn't work that way. It keeps going and going and going and going, getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And just when we think we've, we've managed it all, it gets a little deeper than that. So in, for us then, God, uh, we have to come to understand God first, and then ourselves, and then all of creation as an expression of this relationship between God and us. And to do that, we have to look at the beginning and the end. Uh, to the story of creation and recreation, as I've mentioned. Uh, now, in, in this context, remember, the essence of the first line of Genesis, in the beginning, God, is that God reveals himself. And throughout the Bible, there are stories in which God reveals himself. And some of them are described as visions. Visions of God. And what I want to look at today is five visions and I really don't want to read the text because it'll take too long. So I'm going to read two of them and let the two of the shorter ones and tell you what the other three are and let you go look them up yourselves. But there are five visions that I want to look at. Now, God reveals himself in lots of different ways. Dreams, uh, angels, leadings, all kinds of things, other people. But I want to look at just what, what we call, would call visions of God. Because number one, they tell us something about God. But number two, they also have creation qualities about them. Uh, and the creation qualities are tied to the ancient principle of the temple, which itself is the model for our architecture and our theology and what we do. We'll look at that more next time. But right now I want to look at, at visions. and Because I want you to see this morning, I, I heard the psalm. I was besting in the back and I heard Psalm 80. 79 in the Septuagint, uh, and it mentioned, you're going to hear this in a minute, it mentioned God manifesting himself on the cherubim. So I'll tell you about that in just a minute, because then it'll open a whole new vista of, wow, never saw that before. What does it mean, God manifesting himself on the cherubim? Okay, so visions seem to be something exceptional. 
Only mystics get visions, right? Those really deep people who pray all the time and don't have any fun. Only mystics have visions. Uh, and yet visions of God ought to be normative since God revealed himself in the very beginning. In the beginning, God in creation, in us, he manifests himself. He's visible. He's making himself known. He wants us to know him. And so visions ought to be normative. They're not. Why is that? Well, we saw something happened in creation that undermined all of that and changed it and lessened us. And so the Bible is filled with visions. What do we say at the end of the, at the, end of the Mass from the, with the last gospel? We beheld his glory. Did we behold his glory today? We should have, because he was right there revealing himself to every one of us in a million different ways. Uh, if, if anything, we, we, we want to be able to let go when we come here, let go of all this stuff that's holding us back and distracting us and all the responsibilities. And yeah, the NFL's playing today and I can't wait to get home to see the games. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I remember being in Episcopal Parish years ago when Dallas started at 1130 and people were out of the church before the service was over because they wanted to see the kickoff. Um, that's kind of sad. Uh, and yet we can get caught up in stuff like that. could be to any of us. Uh, so I want to look at five visions and remember what we learned from, from uh, past lessons. In creation, God reveals himself. God is seen frequently on a throne. The throne is humanity. We are the throne of God. We are the throne of God. We are, the, the, we are that which God uses to manifest himself to creation. So that way, one way, we have images of the Blessed Virgin Mary sitting there with the Christ child in her lap. It's not because we're exalting her above all right to exalt her, but she represents all of us, the throne of God. See, when we walk into an Eastern Rite Church, Eastern Rite Orthodox Church, and we see that up there, we go, wait a minute, Jesus is supposed to be up there. He is up there. He's up there in the lap of a human being. So what that says not only is Christ is God incarnate, and he has come to us and made himself known, but he comes to you and me to manifest himself. We are his throne. Wow. Do we live up to that? No. <laughs> oh, man, maybe you do. I don't know. I can only speak for myself. Um, or my family can speak for myself. <laughs> so in any case, man is his throne. The material and the immaterial. That is the, the, the material realm and the immaterial realm of the angelic and heaven and paradise is all interacting in the beginning. They all interact. God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens does not mean the skies. It means the angelic realm. The heavens and the earth. God revealed them. God made them. He reveals himself in it. When we look at that, there's, there are other creation stories in the Bible. We're going to look. We're going to just glance through them next time. Uh, and one of them is in Job 38, where Job challenges God and God comes down and talks to him. And he says, where were you when I created the world and the angels sang the glory of it? Well, angels were singing, don't say that in Genesis, but it says it elsewhere in the Bible. So there was an angelic hymn, angels singing. There was singing in the vision of God in creation. And there was light. Do you know that in the Genesis account, there was light in the beginning before there was day and night? What is that light? God is light and in him is no darkness. His very being generates light. So there's always light in creation. 
and we saw in, in the very first line of Genesis, in the beginning, God, it's in a plural form, gods, you could say gods, that's not really the way it's translated, but it could be translated that way. Gods, and then the third person, masculine singular verb form, in the beginning, gods, he created. Multiplicity and unity, that's what he shows about himself in the first verse of the Bible. So he's multiplicity and unity. When God revealed himself to the people of Israel, first he, he called for a type of worship and he laid out the stages for how they would understand him and understand worship. And first and foremost was a temple that was, was portable uh, and it was called the tabernacle. I, I, don't, I don't wanna waste time distinguishing between the temple and the tabernacle. Suffice to say the temple when it was built later was a permanent structure which was modeled in the tabernacle and all that was given in terms of the tabernacle. So what I say about the temple really refers to both of these uh, in a sense. The temple was supposed to be a reflection of creation, not just a building where people came to worship, but a reflection of creation. It was squared, the building itself, the walls, the structure. The, in, in the ancient temple, you had, you had walled structure. And then you had the temple building within the walled structure, and you had a courtyard or several courtyards outside. It was squared, the wall structure. And square, as you remember, is an old Middle Eastern expression for deity or the presence of deity. Whereas the European expression is a circle, as in Celtic crosses. It's Midic and, and, and Middle Eastern old form was, was square. Hence, the Kaaba in Mecca. Last time I inadvertently said Jerusalem, the Kaaba is not in Jerusalem, it's in Mecca. I know that, but uh, sometimes there's not a whole lot upstairs. Uh, if you look at the Kaaba, the pictures of the Kaaba, it's cubed. You see, it reflects that. And some of Islam reflects pre-Muhammad uh, uh, instruction and thinking, old Arabic thinking. And Arabic, Arabs are at least united to Semites by language, if not by DNA. Uh, so in any case, it's an old, the square or the cube is an old Semitic crime for the presence of deity. So the temple was built, the building itself was built, it was rectangular, but at the very back of it was what was called the Holy of Holies. And it was a cubed space where God manifested, it was believed God manifested himself there and that manifestation radiated out. And when the priest, the high priest would go in on the day of atonement, he'd go into the holy space. He was the only one who could go in there, the high priest. Hebrews, anybody read the book of Hebrews? The high priest went into the holy space, taking with him to all of us in representation. The high priest went into the holy space, into the cube. And then he came out bringing the divine life with him. And it was said, that very often he would see God. And I'll come back to that in a minute. So that was God's space, separated by a veil. There wasn't a door on it or anything. There was a veil hanging there. It was a very large, very heavy veil. So heavy, in fact, that they couldn't clean it because if they got it wet, it would be too heavy to move. So when it was time to clean, they would take it down and burn it and start anew, or actually they'd start anew before they burned it. There were, there were women who, whose lives were given, young women, that is in their mid-teens, mid, mid I guess, earlier, who were given to the temple care. 
uh, and they, they lived in the outer periphery of the temple area. And frequently, some of those women were involved in the weaving of new veils for the temple when they got ready to replace it. If you look at some icons of the Blessed Virgin Mary at the Annunciation, she's busy weaving, not all of them, but every once in a while she's weaving because there's a tradition in the church that when the Annunciation occurred, she was weaving the new veil for the, for, for the temple. Now, when you go into this blank space, empty space, and there's a veil there, the veil keeps you from seeing into what, and God, seeing God as he is. No man can see God and live, the scripture says. God said that. No one can see me and live. So the veil prevents one from seeing that, but actually, one actually sees something. The veil. Now, when in the second, the first century BC, when the Judean population invited the Romans into Palestine and gave them control of that area, Pompey the general had heard that Jews had a sanctuary with no statuary in it. He couldn't believe that anybody didn't have a statue of his God. So he wanted to see for himself. So when he got to Jerusalem and he gained control of Jerusalem with his armies, he marched into the temple and marched into the Holy of Holies and looked and behold, it was blank, empty. Or was it? The veil does both tell us we cannot see and it tells us what we see or what we cannot see. The Blessed Virgin Mary is the one who tells us what we cannot see. We become the ones who show us what we cannot see. We become the images of God. And so the veil was there. And inside, at least in the first temple, the temple was destroyed in 587, 586, rebuilt about 539. Uh, and it was a smaller version to then under Herod the Great, Sometime around 10 BC, it was rebuilt, or it was a long period of time they were rebuilding during his reign uh, and made more magnificent. Uh, in any case, at one end initially was the Ark of the Covenant, that is within the cube. The Ark of the Covenant was a box that had been carried. It was supposed to be the seat of God. On it were two angels kneeling, facing each other with their wings coming over and touching. It was believed that the entire thing was the throne of God. If he came into the temple, he would seat himself right there and manifest himself. The Ark of the Covenant, the very back of the Holy of Holies, of the square, shielded by the veil. When the high... When, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586, they took off, they took a number of, of the, the instruments used in worship in the temple to Babylon. Also, there's a tradition that under Jeremiah the prophet, a number of the things that were holy were hidden, and no one knows where they were hidden. So one tradition in, in Ethiopian orthodoxy says that they have it. And they have a church there. And, you know, you read that story, you might think this is preposterous, but I've read some accounts and <laughs> there's, some, there's some merit to what they have to say, at least enough to go, well, it's not impossible. In any case, we don't know. We don't know. So when the second temple was built, there was nothing in there. It was empty. Didn't have the ark in it. But when it had the ark in it, then also because the Holy of Holies represented the place of God, it represented creation. So inside the temple itself, the building itself, were images of angels all over the place and flowers. 
Why flowers? The Garden of Eden. Because this is paradise on earth, the temple. The temple represents the beginning, paradise on earth, when God manifested himself to us. They wanted them to know this when they came and not just show up and oh, say my prayers and make my sacrifice and be on my way. That takes care of me, makes God happy and all that stuff. They wanted them drawn into this mystery. And if you know what, if in all of this you're going, hmm, this is perplexing, <laughs> just wait. Store it up like the Blessed Virgin Mary did. Store it up, and one day you're going to walk into that church, and it's going to explode in imagery. And then you're going to go, ah, oh, I see why the church preserves all this for us and insists that we preserve it. Because God is at the end of this. So the, whole, the high priest could enter. Only the high priest could enter. But he represents, remember, universality. Each human being, starting with Adam. We tell the story of Adam and Eve because each one of them represented all of creation. Each one of us represents all of creation. All of us here are represented in me, not because I'm a priest, but because I'm a human being. And all of us are represented in here by each one of you. All of us. When we say our prayers, we say them on behalf of all and for all, as the Eastern Rite says. Or as one of the Western Rite prayers says, for those who have said no prayers today, let us say. When we pray, we're praying for all of creation. So the high priest represented all of creation, and he went in representing everything into the place of God, into the place where God was and revealed himself. Remember, you remember telling you the story the priest would wear a miter on his head and he had a band across the front. And some sources say the band had his name on it, or God's name on it, the tetragrammaton, the YHVH of the divine name, the I am, the He is, across the front. And he would go in and he'd have this encounter with God. And it was said that if the sun was right shining through the doors or from the outside, when he came out, his face would, the sun would shine off the golden plate of the name of God and radiate from him. And so when the psalmist says, shine upon us, O Lord, show us thy countenance, they were looking for that sign, the sign that God had just revealed himself in the priest. And when he came out, he represented God to all of creation. And that was all the people there. Talk about a mystical experience. What would happen if one of us turned around just when the sunlight turned and our faces started radiating, you know? What would happen? We'd probably all make an idol of it or something. And, uh, or, or you'd say, you'd say, you know, did he really come from, I know this guy, I know Joseph and his, his mother and family and all that. And he, he couldn't be what we think. Um, so in any case, the high priest, when he went into the room, would use incense. And the thing was, is that the incense was used because if God had revealed himself, the priest could be destroyed <laughs> in those days. Frequently, they would tie a rope around the high priest's legs so that if he died, if he saw God and was struck down, they could drag him out. <laughs> so, in fact, he had pomegranates hanging from the, like, they're like gourds, you know, what gourds with the seeds in them and stuff, with little pomegranates on the base of his vestments. Because that way, while well, he's walking around in the sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies, they could hear him walking around. And when the pomegranates stopped, whoops, he might be down. We might have to haul him out of there. Uh, so they're practical. Remember I said simple things are practical reasons for all kinds of things. Uh, so in any case, he would take incense with him. And if God appeared to him, 
that he would, before God could appear, he would incense the place and he'd fill the whole room with smoke so that he couldn't see God if he, if he appeared. And yet in the smoke, he could see God. The smoke itself was a vision, part of the vision of God. God was manifesting himself in the smoke. I mean, that, if the smoke was there, God is coming. God is present. And so the smoke tells us something. When I was taught this series at St. Constantine Helen when I was there, and, and one day the thurible, the, the, the censer, uh, was back in the sanctuary. They'd hung it up. And it was some reason the coals were burning and smoke was billowing out of this thing. And it just, the priest was doing his sermon, the smoke billowing out, it wouldn't stop. And one of the acolytes was looking at it, just concerned, what do I do, what do I do? And he said, leave it alone, God is manifesting himself. Yeah. Of course, he looked at me like I was an idiot, you know, but, uh, <laughs> but then again, they sort of expected that and didn't pay me any mind. Uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you, I, I, I've had two experiences with smoke like that and what it does. Uh, one, and they were many years ago, but one was, I was at a priest conference and the priests were celebrating the, the mass that was in the Western tradition. Uh, and they used too much incense. And it, usually the, 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 the cooling system sucks the incense out. But when you don't have, when it doesn't work right, the incense just, the clouds linger. So by the time they got to the communion, there were three clergy standing at the altar like we have here, and the cloud was to their waist. So all you could see were three bodies from the waist up, investments, standing in front of the altar of God. That was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. The other one I remember was, it was on a Holy Saturday liturgy in the series of lessons called the prophecies. Uh, and the incense censer was back behind the, uh, the lectern where the reader was reading the lessons. And for some reason, it started smoking like that, a lot of smoke. Uh, and the PA system, the, I mean, the air conditioning system came on. So it drew the smoke like this, right up behind the reader. So he's reading scripture, and this cloud of smoke is ascending just really quick up into heaven. I thought, oh, this is cool. We couldn't see this again if we wanted to, you know, and he didn't even know. So anyway, that's what the incense did. And really, the incense reveals God. So you see clouds and smoke and incense, too, uh, with these imageries. So having said all that and prepared you for it, let me read to you just one of the visions. This is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 from the 8th century BC. That's a long way back. In the year King Uzziah, and by the way, Isaiah was a prophet. He wasn't a priest. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Sitting on a throne, right? The house was full of his glory. Around him stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The lintel was lifted up by the voice of those who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. That's a vision of God. Notice, he's on a throne. The house is full of his glory, his presence. Angels are everywhere. There is singing of sanctus and smoke. What do we do in our liturgy? <laughs> and we fill the house. It, this is great over here. You know, we, this is high enough that the smoke dissipates and you don't notice it necessarily. But when the sun shines through those windows and, then, and the smoke gathers up there, just remember this imagery. God is here. And he's letting himself be seen just in smoke. 
How is that any less believable than God could be seen in me or you or anyone? It is. So, and angels everywhere, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy, and glor thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, singing what they sing. So we're participating in the worship of heaven when we do it. We're joining ourselves to the worship of heaven. Wow. And what is the worship of heaven? What God revealed in creation. And lots of smoke. Well, another one is Ezekiel 1. And this is a long verse. And so I'm not going to, I'm in a long section, so I'm not going to read it. But this took place in the 6th century BC. And Ezekiel was either a priest of the original temple who was taken into exile, or he was the son of a priest, which meant he was going to be a priest someday. And they had no temple for a good 40 years. And he had a vision of what's called the chariot throne. That is the throne of God as it was manifest and where God manifested on it with angels all around. And basically what he saw was the Ark of the Covenant with angels around it. And the angels were the wheels and they were that which held it up and moved it. This is called Merkavah vision in Jewish mysticism. The temple, the, the chariot of God. And what happened to Elijah? He said to Eli Elisha, so when Elisha said, I want, a, 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 I want a portion of your spirit. And he said, if you see me taken up, you will know in, that you have received that portion. And, he, and Elisha looked up and he saw the chariot of God coming down and taking Elijah. And he said, the chariot of God and Elijah, the chariot of God. I mean, he saw the image, the vision of God. So here's what Ezekiel tells us then, the vision of the chariot throne, God appearing on a throne. In iconography, there's a version of this. It's called the desis. Uh, we had it at St. Benedict's. And Christ is sitting on a throne. The Blessed Virgin Mary is on one side of him. John St. John the Baptist is on the other. Both of them are pointing to Christ. But what you don't see and know is that at the, there is a, a diamond-shaped thing in the back in the coloring, which represents a, a, like a sheet or, or some kind of a veil of some sort that was used to lower. And at the four corners are the four archangels who are lowering it. Notice the four angels on the crucifix and on the Christus Rex in there. And that imagery, the angelic imagery. And so it was believed, it's believed by some iconographers that the image of the shroud like that lowering him sitting on the throne is a vision, is an iconographic uh, version of the chariot throne vision. God is coming down to us. And what are the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist doing? Pointing to it. Look, behold. And so you have the vision of the chariot throne. You have angels all over, precious gems. Whenever God is described or the temple is described or the place where God ab abides or will abide or will manifest himself, precious gems are always are often used, the image of precious gems. The cloud or smoke, light and sounds, singing, the sounds of angels' wings, the voice of God. I told you it's not uncommon once our senses become aware to hear things like voices of people who aren't here or with us, singing that doesn't make sense. Where is that singing come from? And we can't manipulate this and we can't make it happen. It just happens when it will and it won't happen when it doesn't want to, but sometimes it does. And those are visions, are part of the vision of 
heaven, paradise, and the vision of God. Another one is Daniel 7. Daniel 7 was written, Daniel's a, a, a paradox because it tells stories that took place in the 6th century BC, but it was written down in the 3rd century BC. So we don't know what the interaction is between the stories in the original form and the writer's intention. I mean, there are different circumstances, similar but different circumstances that led to the writer to put it down. Uh, some people don't want to believe that, but it was one of the last books in the, it, I think it's the last book in the Hebrew or Jewish canon of scripture. Uh, <clears throat> in any case, not going into the story, you have thrones are set up. It's a vision he has. And he has a vision of God as the ancient of days, he calls it. That means eternal, old. His, 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 his being transcends time. They mention a fiery flame, fiery flame, light. Angels everywhere. Judgment is begun. Notice, so, so what is that judgment? So this is creation at the end, recreation. And also, he said, one like a son of man who's also eternal, that is, so therefore, he's introducing multiplicity of God, just like in the creation stories. So Daniel has a vision, basically, of God revealing himself in creation. We can see the associations. Maybe they're just accidental, but do you really think so? <laughs> I don't. Um, and then finally, Revelation 4. I like the revelation. The Lord says to John, come up here and I will show you. <laughs> come up here and I will show you. In Revelation 4, 2 to 11, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. What did, what did Noah see when he covenanted with God? A rainbow. So it goes back to another covenant situation. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24, whoop, turn to me pages, 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So what you get is the throne, a comparison to precious gems, lightnings, thunderings, voices, seven lamps. And here's an interesting thing. It says that the seven spirits of God, that is uh, in, in Revelation, when John at the beginning talks about the seven churches, he's, he's, he's focusing on the area uh, Western, what modern day Turkey would be, Western Turkey. That was called Ionia in the ancient world. Uh, and it was Greek city-states that were established there by Greek, uh, Greek immigrants. Um, and, and so the churches were, there were a number of churches established in that area. And, it, and he's using them as a model to describe the universal church, the entire church. So seven is the Jewish number for wholeness and fullness. So, so seven archangels, seven lamps. So this the fullness of the church. There were seven archangels. Uh, so it could be the seven archangels. It could be the seven churches. It could be the seven branches of the tree of life. And most likely it's all three. Most likely it's all three of those images. You can argue one and immediately the other one comes up and you go, well, I don't know. So it's all three. So that's a revelation, an image or a vision of paradise as well. And then Revelation 1, 12 to 16, where he sees seven golden lampstands, as we saw. 
in the midst one like a son of man. Characteristics are described of the eternal nature and a flame of fire in his eyes and the voice of the sound of many waters and his countenance is like the sun. These are the visions. Now put these together and what you have are thrones. God present is manifest. Angels, clouds, light, fire, sounds, precious gems. What an image. Now, read Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. <laughs> you see the tie-in together of the image of God in Genesis, the beginning of creation. Uh, God is so magnificent and so beyond all of this that we have to look at creation, begin to get, get to hone in on this, to even grasp what it is we're seeing. The point of this is that visions of God share the imagery with the creation stories. And it's not that we should strive to see visions, but we want to seek God as he reveals himself. And that's what the creation story tells us. When we grasp what God has revealed, we will see God repeatedly. And seeing our very beings will be changed. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born, William Butler Yeats said. Talking about something else, but it fits. Our very beings will be changed, recreated to what they were created to be. So we go forward to recreation by going back to creation and vice versa. We can't divorce ourselves from the fact that we were created to be a certain way and we're going to be recreated to fit that model if we want it, if we desire it above all things. And so we participate in recreation in these experiences. And in that regard, then we arrive at creation. Again, let me read to you from Lasky. Authentic knowledge and illumination by grace it is an illumination by grace which transforms our intelligence. True knowledge implies encounter Reciprocity and interaction. Faith as a personal adherence to the personal presence of God who reveals himself. So the church's work is filled with images of the visions of God. Why? Because the church wants us to have that same vision. Christ wants us to have the same vision and to see him as he reveals himself, which is in everything we do. The next time we're going to look at the other creation stories, I'm just going to touch on them and then look at how the church tells us this, particularly through its liturgy, the symbolism in its liturgy and through its uh, uh, lessons, the lesson plans. You'd be surprised where the stories of creation show up in the church calendar. Wow, I didn't say this. I've been at this for years and years and years and years. Just recently saw a few years back. Anyway, questions? Hard to ask any questions. It's either huh or wow. How many of you remember All in the Family? Remember, remember Edith Bunker? Edith was what came across as not being the sharpest knife in the drawer, but Edith was sharper than she came across as being. And she was always a few steps behind in the conversation. So they would say something, Archie and his son and daughter-in-law, his daughter and son-in-law would say something and Edith didn't get it. And Archie and the daughter and the son-in-law go along with the conversation and they were way down the track of the conversation. And Edith's the whole time sitting there going like this, really struggling over one thing they said. And finally she gets it. And she, and out of nowhere, interrupting the conversation, she goes, 
Oh, well, we're like Edith Bunker. So we hear all this stuff, and I guarantee you, it may seem like nonsense to you, but we take it with us, and we don't jump to any conclusions. And somewhere down the road, the lights go on. And all of a sudden, we go, oh, I want you to remember Edith Bunker. <laughs> we are all Edith Bunker at work. Well, that early in the conversation, you said reality extends beyond our limited understanding. My, my question to you is, how much energy should you expend on trying to understand reality? Go about your daily business. Uh, you want to understand it in the context of this. So simple answers. Pray. Do the fundamental things that, that we put into the Christian life that are expected of us. Do those things faithfully, repeatedly, forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. It will draw us more deeply into that mystery uh, and not out of this world. We don't leave this world, but we will come to appreciate this world as we see it, the way God sees it much more clearly. I think the real essence here is so that we can see. You know, do you realize how many stories in the Gospels of miracles have to do with blindness? Do you realize that a lot of them have to do with blindness? People who are blind, who couldn't see, and that's sort of the spiritual side of that message. Our eyes are healed, our sight, our vision is healed. And we begin to see as God wants us to see. Uh, and that affects everything, including even our stewardship in creation. Uh, and what we understand about creation. We have to take care of this place. You know, I, I'm, I'm lucky now I get to sit out in the mornings and say my prayers looking out on a golf course. And I see trees and grass, you know, but there was a time when that was just trees and grass. Now I see it as almost a vision of paradise. Uh, and it's just it's just funny how my, my insight into it looks different now than it would have many years ago. Uh, and it's more soothing to me, and I appreciate the creation much more because of it. So that's sort of a roundabout way of trying to answer your question. It's a question without really an answer. Yeah. It's hard to hear you tackle it and wrestle with it. Contemplate this on the tree of the woe of, what was the tree of woe? I think it's in one of the Conan movies. <laughs> How do you contemplate something? It's on this, you know, I'm just giving you what we have here in the church's thing, and it's, you just have to take it and let it soak in and, and let it expose, expose. God is going to expose himself as he will with each one of us. Uh, Jacob, yeah. Yeah, wrestled with God, right? He didn't even know he was wrestling with God. He must have a really low handicap, Father. <laughs> a low handicap? Why? Well, golf course like oh. <laughs> I don't play, so it's easy for me to have that vision. Uh, if I played, it might be it might be hell on earth, you know. <laughs> anyway, okay, thank you all. God bless.